The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 22nd of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Irish Times reports today on research that was carried out among patients at Connolly Hospital in Blanchardstown and how it shows that injuries sustained from e-scooters are severe and complex and frequently require surgery. The author of the report is an orthopaedic surgeon, Dr Kira Fox, and she says e-scooter crashes result in injuries that are quite extensive, complex injuries and even after surgical reconstruction, patients have a high risk of post-traumatic arthritis. Uh, it's a very concerning report uh, that was published in the Irish Medical Journal and looked at 22 patients in the hospital after being involved in some sort of a, an incident with an e-scooter between October of 2019 and November of 2020. Two of the patients, the paper says, were pedestrians and the burden on orthopaedic teams is significant as things stand, but likely to increase with the popularity of e-scooters. More than a third of the patients treated were admitted to hospital for surgery. More than half of the patients did not have a full driving licence. One in four had less than a week of e-scooter driving experience and 60% said they had less than six months experience. Of course, we see them everywhere, but they're totally illegal as things stand. They're about to be legalised and that legislation is being looked at by the Transport Committee. Let's speak to Timmy Dooley, who's a Fianna Fáil Senator and a member of that committee. And good morning to you, Senator Dooley, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. If that research from Connolly Hospital is of concern, it could be of all the more concern for parents of young children who are going to find these things very attractive and it seems as though they will be permitted by law to drive them because there won't be a prohibition on children under the age of 16 from using e-scooters when the legislation is passed it seems. Yeah, good morning Michael. I mean, it is being teased, legislation is being teased through at the minute but maybe just maybe pull back from the legislation and look at the advances that have taken place in personal mobility. Um, whilst the e-scooters um, are a feature which have kind of grown organically uh, and unfortunately without any regulation at all, uh, I, and I think, quite frankly, the government should have moved, we should all have moved more quickly in, in attempting to put uh, a structure and a regulation about it, uh, around it. But, but look, I mean, you look at the use of bicycles generally. Now, I know bicycles are generally used on the road and therefore don't come into contact as often as maybe e-scooters would because they tend to use uh, footpaths a little bit more. Uh, but e-scooters don't travel at anything like the speed uh, of self-propelled bicycles. So we've got to take them in that space and then try to work from there. They are a feature of, of mobility across Europe. We are trying to encourage more people to leave their cars behind to use a combination of walking, cycling and e-scooters. They're, they're, they're there now. and They're not going away um, and we've got to work, I suppose, in, in a way that allows people to understand better uh, their capabilities, their dangers and their advantages. Mm. And I think most of that, like, like everything, will come through education, uh, public debate, rather than strict laws. So how, um, how do you en- envisage it working successfully? Well, I think in the way, when, when, and it's quite some time since I went to school, but when I did... There was a thing called the Safe Cross Code 
programme. So as part of our primary teaching, we were taught how to deal with uh, fast-moving cars as we crossed the road because you know, I'm, I'm 53 years of age, but when I was in school, there was a lot less cars on the road. So crossing the road was something that kids automatically did, jumped out of their parents' car at the school or um, maybe was dropped by a bus or maybe walked and just crossed the road generally without any traffic lights or, or weren't aware of, of cars in their space. Most kids now from the time they're two or three years of age are conscious of an awful lot more fast-moving vehicles around them and they're acclimatised and, you know, they understand their environment. I think we've got to do the same with the e-scooter. It begins uh, at home, in the school, in the community generally, uh, and I would hope that there could be some uh, safe programmes of education in place that would assist people in understanding what the do's and don'ts are. That can be done through television, through social media advertising, um, and through public information generally. So, mm. so the, the, the safety or otherwise, or the reduction in accidents will come about, in my view, through public awareness, public information campaigns, rather than the, the strict letter of the law as it, as it exists. But okay. these pieces of equipment um, need to be governed in terms of their upper speeds as well. Yep. But I mean, you, well, you that's what I was going to ask you. Does that mean yeah. that 12-year-olds could be driving along at 30 kilometres an hour? Well, I don't think they should be driving at 30, certainly. Uh, but it's certainly 12-year-olds can get up to speeds of pretty fast on, 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 on highly geared uh, self-propelled bicycles at the moment, whether it be uh, on an incline or on the level. So um, it's, 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 I don't think it's about necessarily age. I think it's about awareness. It's about education. Mm. It's about having regard and respect for each other. OK, you, well, you, 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 you know that the National Council for the Blind of Ireland, Irish uh, Wheelchair Association and uh, the Irish Guide Dogs Association have called for limits of between 6 and 12 kilometres. 12 kilometres generally and 6 kilometres around schools. What do you make of that? Yeah, I, I think we do need to look at the limits. I don't know if those are the if those are the appropriate ones because I think there's a balance. Balance needs to be struck between the uptake uh, of these scooters in terms of improving personal mobility um, and uh, you know trying to strike the right balance between getting people out of their cars uh, and onto and into a more active lifestyle and part of our whole carbon reduction point. But I, 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 I've spoken with people from the various organisations. I'm very conscious of their concerns. Um, and I think we do need to be cautious and careful about striking a balance. But we're not we're not an outlier. We're not doing this on our own. Um, these personal mobility scooters are uh, second nature right across Europe. Where, in, where they have cycling lanes. Where they have cycling lanes. And therein lies the difference. I mean, we've uh, somebody... They also have them in cities where they don't have, have cycling lanes. For, for, for work, I was in Brussels yesterday and I see the, the, the sidewalks and yeah. the footpaths. Then you have civil obedience. You have, you have civil obedience. And I think we need to, I think as a society we're maturing and I hope we... Do <laughs> well, I don't think so and I'll give you a very good example of that right now from somebody who's just texted in to say they were walking down the Dunor Road in Drogheda yesterday. They were on the footpath uh, and they came uh, across, well they didn't actually, four e-scooters came across them because the four e-scooters passed them by with no sound to alert them of their presence uh, uh, or anyone else in a space of 10 minutes. Uh, and then... Following the four e-scooters, a cyclist came cycling up on the footpath as well. Uh, we don't have civil uh, obedience. We've high rates of civil disobedience when it comes to e-scooters and bicycles in this country. I, I, I think as a society we're, we're, we're better than we were. I think we have a, a better regard for each other in terms of our, uh, you know, the use of cycle ways, cycle lanes and the road. I, I certainly know when I 
came to college first in Dublin and cycled, it was a kind of a free for all. I think that has. I think that has changed a little bit. But I think the point that your texture has made there, that there were three or four scooters and there was a bicycle, and effectively, they're all in the same vein. The, one is no more powerful than the other or no more dangerous than the other. In fact, I think what we probably need to see is people learning to use these scooters a little bit more. I think they have been seen in the early stages as um, sort of a hobby, um, as almost part of a, a, a gaming culture, if you want, Whereas they're actually pieces of personal mobility. You, you don't have one just for faffing around. Uh, I think they're a method of getting from A to B. And what I see, no different to, um, you'll be familiar with the Dublin bike scheme. There's bike schemes in other uh, cities and towns around Ireland where you can, you know, just hire by the by the 10 minutes or 15 mm-hmm. minutes, whatever it is. The same is happening with these mobility scooters. So in many cases, people won't own them. They'll just pick them up at the train station and use them for a distance at the dark station or whatever bus station to get to get a distance and leave it to be picked up by the next person. And I think that's what you're seeing happening across Europe. It, it, okay. I mean, it's, it's a huge... Uh, can, we mean, get them off, can we get them off the footpaths? Well, I'd like to see people put them in a, in, in a manner that uh, recognises that other people will be coming along. Um, I, I don't know. I think they'll, they'll probably need to be on the footpath um, in, 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 in some cases because in terms of their, their size and scale, they're not as safe as, as, as perhaps a bicycle in a, in a confrontation with a car. So those are all things that need to be teased out. But so so, so you, you think e-scooters should be allowed to use footpaths? I think they certainly should be, that we, we should be working towards as we're building new footpath infrastructure. We should be uh, attempting to make a pathway for e-scooters as well. Yes, as, as new infrastructure oh. is being rolled out. Mm, yeah. And there is a lot of that because there's a huge amount of money being put into active travel um, as we grapple with yeah. uh, reducing the carbon output. Yeah, OK, but I mean, the things are on the footpaths now uh, and the law is imminent, isn't it? It is, but we're still going through various different stages yeah. of it. I mean, we have so, to take so, into consideration other footpath users. Mm. We have to consider the, the people who are on foot in the first instance, but there are people with wheelchairs, there's people with, whose, whose, whose sight is compromised, and that all has to has to come into the mix. So, mm. but footpaths are for pedestrians. They're for feet. They're footpaths. Uh, I mean, yeah, no, I, you can't compete. And uh, particularly, uh, well, I won't. It's probably wrong to talk about young people, but there are a lot of people I, I think who expect you to move out of their way because they're going at a speed and you're obstructing uh, their course. Uh, and it's not appropriate or fair on people who can't hear them in the first instance, like uh, that texture a few minutes ago. I know I accept that, but we've got to get the mix right because, as I said, these pieces of equipment are part of a whole personal mobility program. They're part of assisting all mm. of us in getting out of our cars um, and, and uh, you know, being part of the whole decarbonisation debate. Mm. So we have to give and take, uh, you know, a rigorous approach to their okay. So they so they should be able to go at twenty or they should be able to go at twenty or thirty kilometres, and they should be able to drive on, on footpaths. What well, well, what? Well, didn't say that thirty kilometres on a footpath. Now I think well would be a stretch. Uh, okay, no, so I, so how I, do you control that? that what, 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 what's your idea on that? Then? I think what? we have to take. I think we have to take all the advices into consideration before. Hmm, but uh, what's your opinion? I, I mean, you, you say they should be able to go on footpaths at what speed? Uh, I mean, yeah, if we have to I give think, it and take, tell us what you're asking us to take. I, think that, I think don't see it working. Yeah, I think on footpaths you're talking about a very, very slow speed. So how do you control that? 
Well, I think you have to. You, you, you mean you have a law there in the first instance, but I said. The, sure, we've laws there now, and the guards are not policing the laws. The I know. Guards are turning a blind eye to e scooters at the moment. They have been, uh, bar one incident in Donegal where two sc- scooters were seized last summer. Yeah, and I think when there is when there is a law there, it will have to be policed. And but but generally, then I think people will have to respect it in the same way as you're not allowed on the on on the footpath at the moment with a bicycle. But but I I see it every day. It happens every day. But that's the point. Um, and why why is that say. happening? Why, and why why are the guards turning a blind eye to that? Because I see it every day. I never see or hear of anybody uh, being stopped by the guards for wrongly driving a bicycle on a footpath and expecting people to get out of their way. And I think with the with the with the with the great with the considerable increases I think will come with these scooters, um, law enforcement will have to focus their attention more on uh, this kind of 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 of, of uh, violation, mm. um, and perhaps you know we'll be successful in getting more cars off the road and it'll free up guard the time. And what about uh, houses that don't have front gardens and they walk straight out into the path of one of these things, or people who are reversing their cars, as one of our, our callers said to us last week, and uh, they look around, they see nothing, uh, they're thinking about foot uh, for uh, pe- pedestrians on footpaths, uh, and next of all, uh, there's an e-scooter whizzing by them at thirty kilometres an hour. Yeah, but that happens with bicycles as well. It happens with motorcycles. It happens with scooters. Generally. Well, two, two wrongs don't make a right, do they? No, no, no. Mm. But they're already there. And mm. I mean, I think we've got to accommodate it. We've, we've all got to show respect for each other on the road. The road isn't owned by the motorist, by the cyclist, by the pedestrian, by anybody. And, you know, and this technology is there now. And I think we've got to figure it out collectively how we give everyone the best chance. It's not, by the way, going to, no matter what you do, going to eliminate accidents. People fall off bikes. People get sadly get killed off push bikes. Mm. This ha- this happens, um, and and you know we've got to take what we have learned from uh, bicycles generally, scooters in particular, motorized scooters, uh, and try to ensure that we put in place rules, and more importantly than rules, um, a- an information campaign that assists people in understanding their responsibilities. Uh, they'll. They'll, they'll know their rights, but their responsibilities as well to other old users. And I think we can do that. I mean, I, I think the, the prevalence now of social media amongst people who are using this kind of equipment, we can we can guess and disseminate information a lot more easily. Um, and I think people are prepared to, to read and listen and, and respect the needs of others, quite frankly. I mean, you go back 15 years, and that's why I have great mm. faith in, in, in younger people generally. Um, the scourge of drinking and driving um, is, is is pretty much a thing of the past for people, you know, y- younger than 30. Um, it, it, it has changed very significantly. People have respect for others on the road and know, they recognise... But, but people will be afraid to walk. Actions. People will be afraid to walk in their locality for fear of getting knocked down. They already are. Uh, every time this is mentioned, yeah, we get calls from people... Be, that, has to be, that has to be part of the programme that's rolled out, what is allowed and what isn't. And mm. I think if... If the footpath is excluded, except in certain circum- designated circumstances um, and at certain speeds, then you know there, there doesn't have to be uh, that that fear that, that that might exist of the unknown. I think the practical implementation with appropriate uh, guidance and information uh, can make it successful. I, quite frankly, I think it's it, 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 it's really significant. I think it's um, groundbreaking technology that's been around for a while. Mm. 
um, that can really change the way we live our lives in terms well, of, of I the think the question is do we the, the question is do we have the infrastructure for it because motorists also give out uh, about e-scooters and it's not because they're cranks it's because they're afraid of killing the e-scooter drivers uh, who are driving around with no lights no tax insurance uh, and that goes without saying and I'm not sure what's going to happen with all, all of that for that matter uh, but they've no lights uh, they've no uh, high visibility jackets uh, they have no safety equipment no helmets and all that sort of thing uh, and the slightest tap of a motor car uh, and they're as good as dead. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree with a lot of what you say, but that same commentary has been made about cyclists for as long as I've been a cyclist and a motorist. And I suppose my attitude changed from being a cyclist to a motorist over the years. When I was a cyclist, I gave out about drivers. When I'm a driver, I give out about cyclists. So so, so that, that tension for for road space is there. Um, but, but, but reality is this technology is now there. There's a demand for it. It's, it's rolling out across Europe. I'm sure it was the same when the Model T first came to Ireland. Um, there were question marks as to what impact it would have on horses and carts that went on the road. There's a continuation. <laughs> okay, but we're not talking about... We're, transport. We're, no, 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 but I'm, I'm just talking about the, the tension. We're, we're, we're talking about mothers with prams. We're talking about wheelchair users. We're talking about people who are visually impaired. We're talking about older people. We're talking about ordinary people. <laughs> we're, not, we're not talking about horses and carts. No, but I'm, but I, I mean, it was it was maybe a bit of a tongue in cheek, but the point was, from from the from the the first emergence of motorised transport, there has always been a challenge uh, and a competitive tension with what went before. So you know, you started out people walked, they had they had bicycles, they had horses and traps and carts. The motor car came, the infrastructure wasn't there for that. There were narrow roads that has improved. So as new technology has come along, we've had to adapt and change because people want change and they want new ways of travelling. We have this added dimension right now of wanting to get people out of their cars, spend more time walking and cycling, and hopefully e-scooters can can play a part uh, as part of that mix. It will have a very significant positive impact on the environment generally if we can get more cars off the road. Yes, there are complications. Mm. Yes, there are potential dangers, no different to any other motorised technology, but it shouldn't be beyond the, 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 the will of all of us and the smarts of all of us to get a model that that best works uh, to the greatest extent possible for all. And I think we're working towards that at the minute. We're not on our own. There's learnings from this right across Europe where, there, where people have taken the technology more quickly and have embraced and advanced it. And I think it's, you know, yes, there are potential pitfalls with it, but I think it, the, the benefits far outweigh um, the, the, the concerns that are there now. It, it's not just about teenagers mm. faffing around. This is part, I think, a, a major part okay. of future mobility. And when it goes wrong, what about insurance, if there is no insurance, and should people not be licensed so that you know that they're capable of driving one of these things safely? Uh, you see, I, I compare these, not the, because the fact that they're motorised, but they're no different to an electric bike. Um, there are electric bicycles at the minute, Um and they amount to the same, uh, in essence, they're, they're, it's effectively the same technology, albeit in a different shape, and its purpose is the same. So, so if, you, if you go down that route with uh, scooters, do you do the same for, for, for bicycles generally? And I think if, you're, if your purpose, if, you're, if, if, if the, the major advantage of this technology is to get people um, out of their cars, uh, living a healthier life, uh, removing the necessity, um, removing the necessity for emitting carbon. Well, then you shouldn't be putting unnecessary impediments. Yes, if there's a 
if there's a benefit to it. Yes, if there's if somebody can identify a, a real positive benefit to licensing, but I, I don't see it at the moment. Point. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. That's uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley. Some more comments. Uh, Somebody saying the e-scooters are very handy for runners, for drug dealers. Uh, You do hear a lot of that. Somebody else uh, in touch saying, how many drivers who complain about e-scooters on the roads are parking on footpaths themselves, taking up 100% of the footpath. How many times does this happen? And there's no place left for people walking because those holy cows park on footpaths. Uh, another text uh, from somebody says, Michael, do these people not notice? Footpaths are called footpaths for a reason. They're for walking on. Uh, and uh, somebody else says, you don't get exercise on an e-scooter. Get that silly man off the air. I'm sure uh, Senator Dooley won't thank you for that. And if that's the way you feel well um, there's maybe uh, questions uh, about the legislation that you'll be asking when it is introduced uh, because uh, all of this is uh, making its way through the Oireachtas and has been uh, looked at uh, by the Oireachtas Committee on Transport uh, which uh, Timmy Dooley is a member of Uh, and our thanks indeed uh, to Senator Timmy Dooley for joining us this morning. Michael Reid on LMFM now, local Sinn Féin councillor in Drogheda, Joanna Byrne, is concerned about the state of the roads, the state of the roads just after work is being carried out, and she's on the line. A very good morning to you, and thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Joanna. Uh, there's a, a number of sites I think you have problems with, uh, but you've raised uh, most recently the work that was carried out by Irish Water in Pierce Park. Good morning, Michael. Um, yeah, look, you know, this is something I... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I said our municipal district meeting earlier this month and it, it, it's not a new issue and it's not specific to Pierce Park or to Irish Water. In fairness, it's something that's that's ongoing and it's a recurring issue that's that's been presented to us as public representatives more and more frequently. I did cite the example of Pierce Park because it's going on um, at the moment and it has been going on. There's been um, major works going on there by Irish Water over the last couple of months. And because it's taken so long for this job to start and finish, you can actually see from where they began at the start to the estate and repaired the roads and the footpaths as they're going along and it's mostly footpaths in the Pierce Park area if I'm mm. honest and um, you can actually see as they're moving further and further along uh, towards the Crushrod Avenue end of the estate that the repairs are disintegrating back at the beginning um, so it's just something I've raised with the engineers in the council um, and asked them to 
probably take a bit of a harder line and, and, and demand more from anybody, whether it's Irish water, whether it's electricity, whether it's broadband. And we've had that. We've, we've had it last year in the Wimmel Road when broadband cables were laid and the repairs fell asunder. Um, within a number of weeks and months as well. So I, I think there, there, there needs to be a level of accountability. Of course, we need uh, value for money in these jobs, and, and, and that's one thing. But we also need an acceptable level of repairs to ensure that it's not an inconvenience to the residents, it's not an inconvenience to anybody who utilises the area, um, but it, that it doesn't fall back on the council to have to step in um, at a cost to them later on as well. You know, mm. the Pierce Park area, I suppose, is <clears throat> it's a big residential area and the amenities around the area cover Yellow Bar or Crushwood Avenue. There's a post office, salon, food outlets that probably serve a good percentage of the north side of the town. So there's yeah. high footfalls, there's high traffic and it's not only the residents that it's impacting, it's actually impacting everybody who uses the area. Yeah, and there's, there's a, a number of contractors, as you say, it's not just Irish Water who no, no, dig up the roads. No, definitely not, and I want to be very clear mm. on that. You know, mm. it, it's something that comes with, with our, and works are, are necessary. Nobody's disputing that, but it just has to be that the roads in the past are left in the same um, mm. And they have, they they, they have to get permission from the council uh, to do that through the road opening licensing yes, system, apparently. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And a little bit of measuring and monitoring. Like the council is aware of who they give permission to, to open a footpath or a road at any yeah. stage. Mm. They, they just need to start monitoring these and ensure... Well, they're not going to stop Board Gosh or Contractors Forum Board Gosh uh, to open up the road to get a, a gas supply into somebody's house or something like that. You're no, concerned. no. And, and, and that's, that's not that's not even even in question, as I said, works are, are a necessity and in most cases nobody's disputing that. But, you know, your last speaker was talking about investment in infrastructure and active travel and we're mm. pro- providing new roads, new cycle paths, new, new uh, footpaths. You know, we can't just be standing idly by and allowing our existing ones be repaired. Okay. Are, 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 are you worried about the state of the footpaths for the e-scooter riders then, is it? <laughs> Well, it's more for the residents that have contacted me well, at the minute. Maybe, but, maybe um, some of the residents it, it, are using everybody. e-scooters. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's children mm. on, on out on their bicycles. It's, it's people with prams. It's people in wheelchairs. It yeah. affects every cohort of our community. So it's, some, it's something we need to be conscious of, and perhaps take a harder line approach and demand more from the contractors going forward. All right. Uh, well, it, it seems as though uh, the work hasn't finished. Uh, that's uh, what Irish Water are, are telling us uh, in a statement uh, that I just received before we came on air uh, and uh, that they're uh, replacing uh, problematic mains uh, and what they want to do is to let the work settle, to let the to make sure everything's working and then let uh, the work that they've done uh, on uh, repairing the footpaths after digging them up, to let that settle and then to come back and complete and the work. Uh, yeah, uh, and absolutely, and that's 100%. And ca- the I, County Council, you know, we asked the County Council as well uh, for a statement on that and, and they say pretty much the same thing, that uh, the work will be completed. So you've got this and, problem and which is exactly temporary. what I was asking for, is just to ensure that the council engineers liaise with Irish Water and ensure that all of this is fixed to the standard it was before they leave the site rather than happen to get them back. And that's why I'm highlighting it at present while they mm. are still on site. OK, but I, I think it, they need to leave it for a while to make sure that... And it, let it settle. And let it settle and yeah. then come back at a, a, a later time and finish it off. And they say that that's sort of the way that they do this. Anyway, that's standard practice uh, for Irish Water. And the council seems to be saying the same thing and that uh, if they don't come back, and finish it off then there's fines and different sanctions that can be uh, placed on whoever 
whoever the contractor is, whether that's Irish Water or somebody else. Absolutely, and and that's that's to be expected, and there's there's absolutely no issues with that. But it's just to ensure, like it's it's fine saying you're letting you're letting repair jobs settle, but that's no good to Mrs. Jones who can't get out her footpath and, and get her pram down off it. You know that kind of way. It is an inconvenience to residents. So yeah. even the initial laying of materials to allow them to settle, they have to be to a standard as well that people can manoeuvre around. It's not impacting, it's not obstructing any footpath or any road. It just needs to be to a certain level. And by all means, then come in and do a smooth finish, a streamlined finish at the end, absolutely. Mm. But you can't leave it, especially in a job that's so long. I think the repairs park a number of months now. Right. can't be impacting on residents whilst it's going on. That that initial laying of materials has to be to a level of standard as well, in my view, anyway. Okay, all right. Well, uh, I'm sure there's uh, residents in Pierce Park uh, who uh, agree with that and elsewhere, undoubtedly, for that matter. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you. That's uh, Sinn Féin councillor in Drogheda, Joanna Byrne. Now, let me read you some more of uh, the comments coming to us because a lot of people are in touch with us. We seem to have different opinions coming to us today about e-scooters. Tom and Dundalk, for example, says, I think e-scooters are a wonderful idea and a great and efficient way to get around, but we need special lanes for them and bicycles. There uh, are not enough bicycle lanes. They're too dangerous on the footpaths and who in their right minds would want to be on one on the roads? Thanks uh, very much uh, for that, uh, Tom. Uh, And I think that that's probably uh, the whole thing summed up in a a few words uh, because uh, they are wonderful and the idea of going around and not having to drive a motor car and all of uh, the emissions and the cost of the petrol and everything else you um, involved in that and having the wind blowing in your hair must be wonderfully attractive to a, a lot of people. But do we have the infrastructure? We don't have the roads. We don't have the bicycle lanes. Uh, and there's uh, somebody else already using the footpaths. Although Timmy Dooley uh, seems to think that uh, we should be sharing them with the bicycles and the e-scooters and all of that kind of thing. I do remember speaking to Timmy Dooley uh, a couple of uh, times uh, previously and saying to him that if we wanted to do these things maybe we should have one-way streets across towns generally speaking so that you'd stop two-way traffic and that you'd only have one-way traffic and maybe you'd have a, a lane for the cars you'd have a, a lane for the bicycles you'd have a, a lane for the e-scooters and you'd have uh, the footpaths then for people who are walking and if these e-scooters proved to be as, pos- uh, as popular as they might be uh, well maybe you wouldn't have uh, the congestion and the traffic jams uh, because you wouldn't have people out in motor cars they'd all be on scooters but good luck trying to convince anybody of that I think that's what I discovered uh, what I mentioned at the last time around anyway I don't know maybe you think it's a, an idea uh, you're willing to share your thoughts on that with us uh, if you like uh, or just generally on e-scooters Peter is in Drogheda and he says, I drive a bus. And from my experience, those who are on these scooters think they are invincible. They're sharing the roads with cars and big vehicles and many wear black. They're not lit, lit up. They zoom in and they zoom out in front of vehicles. And I had one the other day coming towards the bus on the wrong side of the road on the inside lane. Crazy stuff. Do they even know the rules of the road? Do they have to sit a test? And I suppose that's the case uh, that uh, you'd make uh, in saying that you should have a, a licence to drive one of these so that you can prove that you know the rules of the road uh, and the dangers uh, of driving the way that you described there Peter as I think unfortunately many e-scooter drivers do. Thank you if you have been in touch with us so far today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM, LMFM. 
Well, Vladimir Putin spoke for about an hour when he addressed uh, the people of Russia on television yesterday and uh, there's been all sorts of interpretations and descriptions of what he said and how he was speaking, uh, talking about... uh, the uh, Russian control over the Ukraine, how Russia, uh, in fact, uh, created the Ukraine. He went back uh, to 1917 and 1921, the First World War, uh, and indeed into the 90s and all sorts of uh, slants on history and different things like that, uh, which may have played well to a Russian audience. Uh, they certainly didn't play well here. But he also said that he, he was defending uh, Russian people uh, who, who believed uh, in being... Uh, citizens of Russia and defending their country and defending their language and all of that sort of thing. Uh, So what he's decided to do is to invade the Ukraine. It's a a de facto invasion of the Ukraine. It's not the full invasion that they're all afraid of uh, and with very good reason. But what he is going to do is send the troops into two regions uh, of the Ukraine uh, because he says they are independent states that uh, two regions of the Ukraine are actually not part of the Ukraine. They're independent states. Uh, and he, he, I think may have uh, been seen by some of the Russian viewers yesterday as coming across very reasonable in some of these arguments that he was making. I would like to emphasize that we are ready to negotiate, but only on the condition that all matters will be considered as a package in complex without going away from the main proposals made by Russia. And those have three main items. Firstly, non-expansion of NATO to the east, non-deployment of offensive weapons next to the Russian borders, and finally, bringing back the military infrastructure back to the Confederation of 1997 when the founding act was signed between Russia and NATO. These principled proposals were ignored. That's uh, Vladimir Putin speaking through a translator there, obviously, uh, and uh, some of... uh the things he, he was saying about this decision which has not gone down well and is going to lead to all sorts of trouble. It'll lead to, to sanctions and maybe very serious sanctions. Uh, there's the possibility then that uh, there'll be a full-on invasion of the Ukraine and it's expected that blood will spill. Let's hear a little bit more about what might happen. Frank Langfitt is reporting for NPR which is National Public Radio in uh, the United States. He's in Kiev or Kiev, as it's known these days. First, I think the government is taking this very seriously. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, he spoke with President Biden and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson today. Zelensky's convened his National Security and Defense Councils, and on the streets of Kiev, things are calm. They've been calm really since the beginning of the troop buildup on the border back, which really back last fall. Online, we're seeing a wide range of reactions. Many people are saying they're going to join these territorial defense units to protect the country against a possible attack. A lot of people are urging people to donate money to the army. Ukrainians who fled earlier from the fighting in these separatist regions, they're saying, um, you know, I will never go home again. And then responding to Putin's claim that Ukraine is run by fascist, Russophobic, basically a fascist, Russophobic regime. Um, One person wrote, well, at least he admitted that he has lost Ukraine. And I think that that's a very powerful statement. You know, if you talk to people here, they are not very interested in Russia. They do not like Vladimir Putin. They are much more focused on a relationship with the West and, and Europe. 
And if you look at polls now, more than two-thirds of Ukrainians want to join NATO, NATO and the European Union. Uh, only 21% would want to be a part of an economic bloc with Russia, Belarus and Kazakhstan. Frank Langford, who's in Kiev, reporting for NPR who undoubtedly, like everybody else in Kyiv, including uh, the Ukrainian officials and government, will be watching what Russia does next in the coming hours and days, for that matter. Well, they'll be looking to see how the West responds to all of this. And so far, what we've seen out of the White House is they've been saying moving troops into the Donbass in eastern Ukraine does not necessarily basically count as a further invasion. The U.S. is saying Russian troops have been in the region since 2014, despite the fact that Moscow has been denying that. But I think the question also is how far do these troops go? What do they do? And if there's a lot more violence, which I think if there's more violence, which I think it could be expected, how do they justify it? Are there going to be staged false flag operations in which Russia claims some you know, Ukrainian army people have attacked civilians or troops? in a way to insist that they can take more territory. We've already seen some disinformation this afternoon in the headline, a Russian news site saying, Kiev inflicts massive strikes on residential areas in Donetsk People's Republic, but we don't have any evidence for that. And, and the question is, do they even go far, farther? Is there a, a massive invasion, as the United States has says that they think could easily happen, coming out of Belarus, up from Crimea, and actually coming right here to Kiev? Uh, in an attempt to topple the government here. And that's uh, Frank Langford, who's in Kiev, reporting for National Public Radio NPR in the United States. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about that later in uh, the programme. Nicola is in Drogheda, and Nicola was on the phone to us, like a, a lot of people this morning. Thanks for your call, Nicola. She says, My adult friend uses his e-scooter to get to and from work, and he has no problems with it at all. He's respectful of all other road users and footpath users, and he's mindful of his own and other people's safety. You can't tar everyone with the one brush. Thank you indeed, Nicola, uh, for that, because it's good to hear both sides uh, of uh, the story. Sheila uh, says electric scooters are lethal, on the other hand, and Sheila says she believes electric cars are too. You don't hear them until they're right beside you. And they're especially dangerous for children crossing the road. We really need to be thinking twice uh, about using uh, electric vehicles in general, Sheila says, because we can't hear them and... uh, one of the things uh, that they've been trying to do is to put in uh, sound in the cars. Apparently, it's not that easy to do with the e-scooters. Peter, thank you for your call. Uh, Peter says, what planet is Senator Timmy Dooley on? It's kids from 10 to 16 who are on these scooters. They're racing on the paths. You're taking your life in your hands, just walking on the footpaths in Dundalk, and they don't even have any helmets on, so they're a danger to themselves apart from anything else, Peter says. Uh, A lot of people have been in touch about e-scooters. Probably no surprise, because I think there's strong feelings on both sides of this debate. Another caller who is visually impaired says... Only they only step outside of their front door. This is a woman who says, I only have to step outside of my front door and I nearly knocked down by people on scooters and she wonders if people in government really have a clue what life is like for people uh, who, uh, like herself, uh, have uh, problems like that. As I said, she's visually impaired and thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to pick up the phone and give us a call this morning and sharing your thoughts with us. Michael Reed on LMFM. 
Now to a question that has been asked probably for the last 50 years or so, and that is if the criminal justice system is working in the war against drugs. 9% of the population used an illegal drug in the last year. This rises to one in four amongst males aged 25 to 34. 376 individuals died from a drug overdose in 2017. 9,700 cases were treated for problem drug abuse uh, use in 2020, with another 5,800 cases were treated for problem alcohol use. The many people who experience the collateral impact of drugs, including children, families and communities, as documented in recent reports on Ballymun, Drogheda, Darndale, Talla, the North East Inner City and Dublin South Central, in excess of 200 million per annum in labelled public expenditure on drugs, including 136 million from the Department of Health, with unlabeled expenditure and productivity costs of over 650 million. The scale of drugs and economy and criminal activity. My second message is the commitment to a health led approach is the national drug strategy, whereby drug use is treated as a public health issue and not primarily as a criminal justice matter. And let me be clear, a war on drugs is not an effective response. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Response to drug use. Right, that's the minister who has uh, responsibility for the implementation of uh, the national drugs strategy, Frankie Feen. He was speaking at the Rockers Health Committee uh, a couple of weeks ago. And let's speak now to Labour Party TD, Aon O'Reardon, who's on uh, the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. We can hear what the government is saying there, and they're talking uh, about the criminal justice system no longer working and that it should be treated as a health issue, uh, and uh, that it should be a public health issue that it is treated like any other one uh, but apart from talking about this you're wondering what the government is doing about it. Well those words sound fine but this presentation unfortunately when you go into the details of it it's quite clear that his department feels very differently from those fine words and there is a commitment in the programme for government for the establishment of a citizens assembly on drugs. I would give credit to the Green Party for facilitating that, prioritising that in the programme for government and actually for advocating for for within government. Um, but what I heard yesterday, as reported in the journal.ie, is that the proposal for the Citizens' Assembly on drugs has been put back to 2023, even though on the 8th of January I was told by the Taoiseach in the Dáil 
that the Citizens Assembly on Drugs would take place this year. Now, on at least six or seven occasions over the past two years since I've come back into the Dáil of the TDs and Dublin Bay North, I've raised the issue of the Citizens Assembly on Drugs because, as Minister Fian just said there, in 2017, we had more than one person a day dying of fatal overdoses of drugs. Now, my point is that if this has happened to cattle, if the same number of people of cattle were dying from some unknown ailment, there would be an, a huge national response to it. There would be a huge political and governmental response to it. Mm. But because those are, who are dying of, of drug overdoses are considered not to be worth very much, their value on their lives is particularly you know, unimportant politically, that we have this level of lethargy and, and apathy and disinterest in actually putting together a citizen assembly on drugs. And I, I might say this, it would have been easier, easier for us in the opposition to dismiss the idea of a citizens' assembly, to, to say it's just a talking shop, uh, you know, to, to do the, the, the classic opposition politics thing. But for the last year and a half, we've been waiting for this minister. We've been waiting for this minister to step up and do more um, effective work, to feel as if he has a grasp on the enormity of this issue. And we were waiting and encouraging and working cross-party to, to try and support him in establishing the Citizens' Assembly. But what have we got? We got an announcement two weeks ago mm. there would be two Citizens' Assemblies, one on biodiversity and one on the uh, potential elected Lord Mayor of Dublin. Mm. The drugs issue has now, as we learned yesterday, been put back into 2023. And it's a question... A year's time. It's a question of prioritising. Uh, I mean, you can only uh, uh, expect uh, so many citizens' assemblies uh, and them to look at, at so many issues well, in any given time. But, but your, your point is that they're getting their priorities wrong. Well, there's also a complete misunderstanding of the nature of what we're asking for. In the presentation given by the Minister there, and also to me in the Dáil, he says frequently that he's not in favour of the decriminalisation of drugs. Mm. None of us on our side of, the, of this discussion are talking about decriminalisation of drugs. We're talking about decriminalisation of the drug user, which is a completely different, a different um, discussion. So just for your listeners who might be, I don't know, often confused by this term decriminalisation, nobody's talking about legalisation of anything. What we're talking about is that the person who uses drugs, the person in addiction, will be uh, dealt with, supported, um, uh, you know, empowered purely, and only through the health system, because okay. 70% of our court cases that deal with drugs at the moment are for possession for personal use. Yeah. Basically, people who are addicted to something, but we're criminalizing them, and it doesn't work. It's just not working. If it worked, I might you know, not be involved in this discussion, but it's not working because we have the fourth highest overdose rate in Europe. But the problem is that those who die are just not considered to be politically important. Okay, so and maybe, normally, maybe we'll come back to that in a moment. Because point, that point, sorry, I want to make a very, very yeah, important yeah, point. Yeah, sure. Because yeah. they come from more socially disadvantaged backgrounds, mm. because they tend to be from areas of disadvantage, because they're from marginalised groups. Mm. Okay, sure. And sorry for talking over you. Um, okay. uh, maybe we can come back to that point in a moment, because maybe there is an argument uh, to... Uh, legalise drugs rather than just decriminalise the user in order to protect the user. As I say, we'll come back to that in a moment, but uh, if you don't believe that that uh, argument has merit, uh, but you do believe in decriminalising the drug user, as you put it, uh, you already know the end game. Uh, why do we need a Citizens' Assembly to get there? Uh, I mean, is it not like uh, same-sex marriage? Uh, we knew what we wanted before we went through the motions of uh, a Citizens' Assembly uh, and uh, discovering that people agreed with the motion uh, or uh, on the Eighth Amendment or so on. Why do we have to go through all of that process? Why not uh, just skip that and decide now to decriminalise drug users? Because 
I, you know, I may be convinced of it, but I don't think your average member of the public is, is convinced of it. And I think it's not just about me being convinced. I believe it's also about having this process where, where you take the politics out of it, you take the party politics out of it, you take the normal punch and duty over and back out of it, and you have a hundred or so people in the room with no other agenda who come uh, to, to a space to discuss the different issues. Now, there is, there is for, for example, example of Portugal. Portugal 20 years ago decriminalised the drug user. They have a 50% decrease in the number of people on, on, on heroin dependency programmes. Mm. They have a 75% decrease in the number of people who have died from overdose. However, Ireland is not Portugal. There's, you know, there's different, we have a common law system, they have a different uh, you know, legal system in Portugal. So these things have to be teased out. What does personal use mean? What, you know, what is the mm. amount of drugs that people can, can determine actually is uh, personal use? These are, and, and there's other issues around drugs about uh, not just about decriminalisation, but also about education, about recovery, uh, about dual diagnosis, about naloxone. There's so many, uh, you know, uh, overlapping uh, and complex issues about a very, you know, a fastly changing uh, drug landscape. So it's not just about the one issue of decriminalisation, but if it was to be prioritised, you mentioned marriage equality and and, and the Eighth Amendment. uh, Having a Citizens' Assembly shows that the government is serious about it. And also, when it comes back to the Iraqis, then we don't have the same level of, of, of sort of spiteful uh, uh, discourse around a particular a particular issue as happens every day here in Leinster House. What you have here is that you, you, you've had a citizens' assembly who have delved into the issue uh, with no other agenda, come up with their recommendations, and I find in the history of this thing is that politics deals with it differently. It gives it a higher priority. It okay. gives it a greater sense of uh, of, uh, of, eleva- uh, of elevated sort of. Um, uh, of response because it's not coming from one political entity. It's okay. not coming from one political right. uh, ideology. Okay, but uh, take methadone for example. Drugs are legal in this country. Methadone is basically a prescribed form of heroin. It's a very, very strong drug. We don't hear very often of people dying from methadone overdoses because it's prescribed, it's controlled, uh, and uh, people are watched over in that sense. Uh, but you often hear of heroin overdoses. Why not decriminalise drugs and take the risk out of it for the drug use? and take the gangs and the guns and all of that sort of thing out of it as well? Well, I am of that view. I am absolutely of that view. I mean, I think it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense at all that when somebody is, is chronically addicted to something, that the immediate response of the state is to arrest them and put them in front of a court and they expect that that's going to work. Mm. Right? I mean, I think if somebody is chronically... Or allow somebody to sell them poison. Or, or allow somebody to sell them poison, etc. So, but I think what happens here is that in Irish society, we have uh, placed so much stigma around this uh, around this area that somebody who is involved in this addiction is very unlikely to put their hand up and say, uh, I'm addicted to this issue, I'm addicted to this substance, mm. please let me tell you my story. What changed with marriage equality is that we had people from the LGBT community yeah. who put their hands up and said, this is my life. When we had the Eighth Amendment discussion, we had women in this country putting their hands up and saying, this is my life. Yeah, but, but if you put, put hold on, no, no, this is a very important point. Yeah. If you have anybody in the Irish society puts their hands up and say that they have a, an addiction issue, they'll be called a junkie. Mm. And that word can be used on your radio program, mm, mm, on mm. other radio programs, on television, or in media, any day, any hour of the day or night, and people will get away with it because that word can be used in, in common discussion and polite uh, in, in polite discussion. There's very other word, few words that stigmatise uh, a vulnerable group uh, that can be used uh, yeah. in polite conversation. I'm not even sure that, that it is stigmatised. I mean, uh, the word came no, about no, 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 as I as I remember it. In fairness, I, I mean, heroin uh, in particular was described as junk, and people who used it were called junkies. Uh, and what uh, happens to a, a drug user is that they're reduced to. Uh, 
something far yeah, from their, what, 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 what they, they, they could achieve in life. And when you do meet them, they may be robbing your house to um, fund well, their then, habit, or they may be working, or they may be working as prostitutes. But that's all part of the problem with the criminalisation of drugs. It's not I a agree, rabbit hole; it's I the agree, reality of it. Also, but, the, but the byproduct of the criminalisation is the fact that we dehumanise the drug user. And we use terms that one I just used, mm. and that's and that dehumanise them. And then if, if people, but they still need. Them, if, if you decriminalise the drug user, they still need to buy drugs. They still cost a fortune where they shouldn't cost anywhere near what the drug dealers charge. Uh, I mean, if you were able to go down to your chemist and get your vial of heroin or whatever it is, uh, you wouldn't need to break into somebody's house. And that's the point exactly. that I was making. And to what you. happens in what happens in, in, in Portugal, just to explain to people mm. when de- when decriminalisation came in, is that if somebody was caught in, in possession of something that the, that they were using, which was an illegal substance, they went in front of a, what was called a, is called a dissuasion committee. And the dissuasion committee has a nurse, a doctor, a counsellor, and this is where there's a process undertaken to you know, talk to you about your drug use, to help you along a path of recovery, and that's the best way of dealing with it, rather than the criminal justice system. Part of Peter McBurry has been on pl- platforms with me, talking about, it's a homeless campaigner, I'm, not, I'm sure that many people will be aware of, um, has talked about being in court with a young person who is uh, being charged for the possession of cannabis to the worth of two euro. Mm. Now, this is a complete waste of guard of time. The guards should be focusing their energy on the gangs, as you said, on, on, on the major players. Yeah, not but the, on, on those who are the gangs would have to find something victims. else to do, would they not? I mean, if you were to legalise drugs, you'd take the gangs out of it. Yeah, well, look, <laughs> this could all be part of our discussion if the government had decided to have the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs this year. But what they've decided to do is to put biodiversity first, and I think that's probably understandable. The Mayor of Dublin discussion, I'm not sure if that's as, as important an issue as drugs are, and they're putting this back to 2023. So all what we're discussing here now on, the, on your show mm-hmm. is so important because people are literally dying. They're dying on streets, they're dying in street corners, they're dying in skips, they're taking overdoses. We have, as I say, the fourth highest overdose rate in Europe. They're literally dying uh, on the streets of Dublin. That's why we wanted a, a medically supervised injecting centre, which is now legal, but we haven't been able to get planning for because you have to keep objecting to it. All of these issues are so important, but the stigma is still attached to the issue because families feel they can't come forward because people blame them. The individual is blamed as well. Meanwhile, as Minister Fian has just said there on, on your, on your, on your mm, recorded mm, piece, mm. in 2017, 376 deaths mm. from drug overdose. If it was anything else, anything else, there'd be a massive national outcry. But the feeling mm. I guess in society is that, well, to be honest, a lot of these people, it's their own fault. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think even if we were to take the money that is spent on policing it uh, out of the guard the budget and put it into health budgets to treat those people, uh, there'd probably be money left over. There would, absolutely. But again, what priority are we putting on these lives? Do we actually genuinely consider these lives to be worth saving? And I don't think, unfortunately, we do. Now, I think government needs to change its tack on this. And by the way, there are any amount of good people in every single political party who wants to have this discussion. There's been Fianna Fáil backbenchers mm-hmm. who've been asking for mm-hmm. decisions every on, jo- yeah. on drugs. Paul McAuliffe, I think, has been asking for it, hasn't yes, he? Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. Horrigan from the Green Party, mm-hmm. um, you know, who's also a government TD. There's, there's Green Party ministers I've spoken to about this who are serious about it. I don't understand why this particular minister can send out a statement yesterday saying, even though the T-shirt two, two weeks ago said it would happen this year, I know it will be 2023. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we're going to have a death a day from overdose. Okay. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for making those arguments with us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Good to talk to you. That's uh, Labour TD for Dublin Bay North, Aon O'Reardon. 
Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's uh, talk uh, about uh, that news uh, from uh, the meeting of Louth County Council yesterday. As you heard on LMFM's news, uh, the Chief Executive Joan Martin told members she's not in a position to provide funding for further public lighting in uh, the county. Uh, there's been some response uh, to this. Let's uh, speak uh, to two women who sit on uh, the council, Michelle Hall of uh, the Labour Party and Maria Doyle of Fine Gael. And, uh, very good morning to both of you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Michelle, uh, we heard you in the bulletin saying it's not just uh, about women but there's particular concern about women having to go out and walk the streets if they're not lit. Yeah, it, it is a problem um, where you have public spaces that aren't well lit at night time and women are afraid to go out. It's not a new um, phenomenon. It's something that women have always been afraid to go out at night time. I feel if it's a dark area. Um, and the town is expanding, say, for example, in Drogheda, where we have new estates say, up at Bewley Village, but there's no lighting up there to the new estate. Um, so we're not getting things done in tandem, um, mm. unfortunately, and that makes it difficult for women to access those spaces at night time, which is really unfair. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I think we could look at the government policy around gender spaces. Um, So women use the space maybe slightly differently and also that we are more fearful to go out in the evening time. So it's also a national issue, not just an issue for County Loud. It is a national issue, something that we don't often think that our spaces aren't made for women. Mm. Uh, Should it be something that's incorporated uh, into planning Uh, regulations uh, because uh, I mean I think the council was told you can't spend money if you don't have it uh, and if the money isn't there we can't provide the lighting but uh, when that new estate that you spoke about uh, was uh, being looked at by the planners should it not have also provided the lighting uh, in the vicinity for people to be able to use uh, the area around the state? Yeah, exactly. It should be really. Um, and I suppose that's what our development levies are for. But we can put the uh, the lights in. And Joel Martin did that, say that, like we can put the lights in. But then it's the long term payment of actually connecting those lights and paying that bill. And because she feels that there hasn't been any really increase into local authority budgets, that she can't afford to pay for that. And I do understand where she's coming from. Right. Um, mm. But that is um, a national issue as well, that this is happening all over the place, you know, where we're having expansion in our urban areas, um, but we're not having the funding to match that either long term. Okay, so you think she's right. Uh, You understand her position, uh, but it shouldn't be the position that she's in. Is that it? I I do. I totally understand Mm. where she's coming from, but I really don't feel that that's it's something that women should be disadvantaged by just because that the government isn't funding local authorities in such a manner that it makes it safe for everybody to go out at night time. Okay. Maria Doyle, do you agree? Um, I agree with a lot of the points that Michelle has raised, but I don't agree that the Chief Executive is right in, in this case. I think that there is an onus on Loud County Council to provide adequate lighting. And um, what Michelle mentioned there is, is, is absolutely right. We are granting planning permissions for new estates and the development of our towns throughout the county, Dundalk included, Mid-Loud and South-Loud. But we are not providing the infrastructure that's needed. So the example you give there, Michael, was an estate in Drato where um, the plan permission didn't mm. didn't look for additional lighting. The planning permission will ensure that the lighting of the estates themselves are, are, are adequate, mm. but not on the approach road. So again, I'm thinking of Muller Harlan Road in Dundalk. I get calls from, about, uh, from people there regularly who live mainly in a new estate at the top of the road, but the road itself is not lit. And it's becoming even a, a greater issue again now um, with people returning to the workplace, commuting, 
to Dublin and so on and then getting off buses in the evening and having to walk these dark roads back to their estates. But I think I understand that the cost of um, lighting to Loud County Council, I think it's running somewhere at 1.9 million out of a 140 million budget. It is a significant cost. But I think it's a necessity. It's not a luxury. Lighting is not a luxury. If you live somewhere that is poorly lit and that you don't feel safe, mm. um, and, and also the safety uh, in terms of you know the, the issues that, that Michelle raised, absolutely, it's so important for women to feel safe walking after dark. But also in terms of trips and falls and people getting injured. Yeah. Um, mm. I raised this at the meeting and I was told, well, um, because media outlets had reported recently that Loud County Council had paid $8 million in... Um, in legal claims and I was told well look we pay our insurance premium it doesn't really matter what the payouts are that I, that's what I felt the answer I got was but it is important we, we have to ensure people's safety and good lighting is, is really a necessity Yeah and there's been a fairly significant increase in the budget hasn't there because it, it, you said 1.9 million uh, for this year it was 1.6 million last year was it? For, for lighting yeah so yeah. it is mm. we're, and that includes service costs so it's probably one point I think it's 1.85 for the lighting yeah. alone and then I mean we know that energy costs are rising we understand that um, it's an issue for us all and it's an issue for local authorities too Loud County Council are signed up to a, a national scheme which is called uh, the Local Authority Public Lighting Energy Efficient Project mm. and it's due to start in the second quarter of this year which will see our lighting changed over to LED and hopefully that will, will in reduce the cost, cost. Yeah. exactly yeah. but yeah. But this moratorium that we've had ever since I've been a councillor, and you know, I'm I'm almost ten years, or I'm over ten years as a public representative. Loud County Council have had this moratorium, no new lights, no new lights, and I think we just can't have a total car blanche. No, when it comes to something as important as good lighting. Okay, but more money is being spent, the cost is going up, and there isn't any more money. So what do you do? Well, our budget did increase last year by nine point eight million. Our overall budget um, it increased. So uh, we are, I suppose one one thing that we could do is increase the LPT and um, the local property tax. And if that was going to be reinvented mm. for improved lighting, well, that may be something. Well, that's uh, that's a way of raising more money. Do you think people want to pay more in local property tax? Absolutely not. I mean, mm. everybody's cost of living is, is going up. Nobody wants to pay more. But I'm sure the Loud County Council could find other areas that weren't as, as much of a necessity as lighting that they could re- reduce the cost next year. Um, our, as I said, our budget this year went up by 9.8 million. That's a significant increase, up to 140 million. So um, I think that we just need to mm. take it as a case by case. Where lighting, lighting is really needed, we need to provide it rather than saying no, no, no matter where it is. Okay, Michelle Hall, you were saying uh, more money from uh, central government uh, to fund local authorities. Uh, in lieu of that, would you support an increase? in uh, the local property tax uh, to provide more lighting or to cut back somewhere else, as Maria Doyle was just saying there? Yeah, well, we have to look, first of all, what our uh, revaluation of the local property tax and the increase that will come to Loud County Council and see what uh, deficit there is there. And again, I'd have to talk to my own Labour colleagues about an increase in property tax, but these are services that are a necessity, as uh, Councillor Doyle has said. Um, so, and as you say, if you're looking at particular areas, maybe it isn't going to increase a huge amount that maybe a Joan Martin is think is going to increase either. So, um, and I would uh, really recommend that we have a safety audit for women, especially in our town centres where we have women that are from many different types of backgrounds, race, sexual orientation, um, socioeconomic backgrounds that they also have a voice and they uh, let us know where are the areas that they feel are um, 
what where they feel unsafe. Yeah. And, you know, things like dereliction and littering and graffiti, those are also issues that make women feel unsafe too. So it's a kind of a, a multi-structural issue as well, not mm. just public life, I'm afraid. Yeah. Where do you feel safe, though, uh, I suppose, is uh, the next point uh, and mm. the obvious uh, thing that comes to mind is what happened to Ashley Murphy in mm. broad daylight in uh, the middle of the afternoon. Yeah, it, it, it is unfortunate. And it, again, it's we're not just looking at uh, change in our public spaces. We are also looking at the systemic problem of men and male violence. And male mm. violence doesn't just occur against females. I have teenage sons myself. And again, I do worry about that, even them going out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, male violence, full stop, has to, has to cease. And we have to look at the causes of that. And again, one of the causes of that is domestic uh, violence in the home, where these children from a young age are experiencing domestic violence themselves. Um, I have initiatives that I am trying to push forward with the government Operation Encompass, where we do address those issues um, at a very early stages, where they're supported in schools and by the Garda liaison officers. And I think we need to look at the causes and how um, we can really change male violence in our society. Mm, if it's possible at all, uh, I wonder, um, because uh, it seems uh, to be a problem that's not just unique to this country. I was just discussing that with uh, the Minister for Justice last week and if the international recommendation is to have one refuge space for women for every 10,000 of the population, uh, then you've obviously got a a problem uh, that is almost human nature uh, if it's that way everywhere, if you understand what I mean. Um, I'm not sure, uh, Maria Doyle, if uh, you uh, agree with that or if you think that something can be done in the short term or if other measures should be put in place to make uh, public spaces safe for women, whether that's lighting or cameras or other issues. Yeah, well, uh, certainly cameras is is another another aspect of it. I mean, I think it's, as Michelle saying, that we're coming at it at a lot of different angles and it's important that we do that, that we don't just address infrastructure issues like lighting and CCTV, but we look at education, we look at uh, enforcement, we look at um, the punishments that are handed down in our course, and we look at um, you know issues of, we had the issue last year of the Guardian maybe not attending all these calls for domestic violence. We have to look at it at, from all these aspects. Uh, as a primary school teacher, I suppose I was very conscious that during the lockdown, school lockdowns during COVID, that we uh, teachers who are mandated persons weren't in a position to, to see signs of neglect or abuse of the children that we teach and I think that probably contributed or certainly didn't help um, and I think it's great that schools are fully open now and hopefully will we'll, we'll stay that way so that we can be in that position uh, to look out for um, the things that we have done in the past so we're co- we need to come at it from a lot of different angles and we, we might have successes in some areas and not in others but uh, we have to try and we have to not just accept it and, and lie down under it and say well there's nothing we can do it's, it's human nature no, we need to find ways of making it unacceptable. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you both indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Maria Doyle, Fine Gael Councillor. We were also speaking with Labour Party Councillor Michelle Hall. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, there's a very interesting question as to whether Phil Hogan is uh, going to sue the European Commission or or not. Uh, And he appears to feel that he has good reason to do so. He told the Irish Independent he was humiliated and treated like a criminal over the Gulfgate scenario and indeed how that led to his forced resignation. Let's talk uh, to Karen Coleman, who's the editor with Europar Radio, which reports 
on the European Parliament for Irish radio stations. Good morning, Karen, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. How's this going to go down in Brussels? Well, I mean, uh, the European Commission spokes, main spokesperson was already um, put under fire yesterday from uh, some questions from different journalists about this. I think, um, you know, their, their dip, or his diplomatic response at the time was something along the lines of that, you know, Mr. Hogan um, tendered his resignation. Um, but, you know, I'm sure that um, they're not very pleased that he has come out now um, with the story. It's not surprising following the court ruling on, on the holding of the Oireachtas Gulf Society meeting in Clifton. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I would say they will just, what they will do is say it was Mr. Hogan's decision and he decided to tender his resignation. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's fair enough. Uh, but then what might Mr. Hogan do? Uh, because uh, he obviously wants to be heard. He's been speaking to French media and to the Irish Independent today. Uh, could he have grounds for legal action? Well, I mean, I suppose this wasn't anticipated, Michael, after the court ruling that those individuals, including Phil Hogan, who were severely impacted, they, in his case, of course, lost his job, and that maybe they would consider legal action. Now, whether in fact it's ultimately going to make any difference to what has happened to Phil Hogan, who knows? Um, but I suppose it, it, it's not unsurprising that he would come out now, um, all guns blazing, if you like, and, and saying that it, it, that this shouldn't have happened to him, that he was put under pressure to go. Um, so that's not surprising whether he's going to continue to take you know, this further, who knows, um, mm. maybe he will, um, and whether he will get anywhere, who knows either. But of course, the ruling has certainly raised the issue about whether people who were forced to resign at the time in retrospect, whether that should have happened now. And, of course, that would also apply to Phil Hogan. Now, there were, of course, issues around him at the time about whether he was breaching COVID guidelines aside from what had happened at the Gulf Society meeting. He was claiming, of course, that he hadn't. And and if you remember at the time, he had been quite belligerent in his defence of his movements around Ireland and attendance at Mm. at the Gulf uh, event at the time. And I think that didn't do him any favours. Um, perhaps if he had been maybe less defensive, there might have been a different approach taken in Brussels at the time. Okay, but it it would be something like a a constructive dismissal case that he'd be taking against the European Commission Commission because he was working directly for the Commission. He was working directly for the Commission, and of course, and I think he has alluded to this in those interviews that he has given, the Commission is supposed to be objective. It's supposed to be independent from any of the governments or any pressure coming from those governments or leaders in EU member states. So, of course, this was an issue at the time, whether Ursula von der Leyen had been put under pressure by the Irish government um, to basically get rid of him um, because of the um, controversy it was causing in Ireland at the time. And this is an issue about the independence of the Commission, because, of course, and I think maybe uh, Phil Hogan may have said this in his interview, Commission, the European Commission cannot be held hostage by those governments because they could be firing commissioners left, right and centre if a new government comes in and doesn't like the commissioner that has been appointed who might have represented the party of a previous uh, government. Mm. So they have to be seen to be independent. Um, and I suppose only lawyers will be able to tell whether or not he has a case now for, as you say, something maybe along the lines of constructive dismissal or undue coercion to resign when he felt he shouldn't have. Okay. 
of great interest, I'm sure, to many people here. I, I imagine the Commission has... Uh, some more important issues uh, on its mind uh, this morning uh, and uh, if you bear with me for uh, one minute uh, we'll hear a little bit more from uh, the Russian President Vladimir Putin and uh, that speech he gave uh, uh, to Russian television last night. It went on for uh, about an hour or so and uh, we're talking about uh, an invasion into the Ukraine, a de facto invasion as things stand in fear of a full-scale invasion uh, but the President was arguing to the Russian people that he really doesn't have much choice in this because of the behavior of the West. Once again, they try to blackmail us. Once again, they threaten us with sanctions. And I think they will still impose those, introduce those as strong and as more powerful our country becomes. They will always find an excuse to introduce more sanctions, regardless of the situation in Ukraine, that is. The only goal they have is to contain the development of Russia. And they will do that like they did it before, without any formal excuse, only because we exist. And we will never concede our sovereignty, our national interest, and our values. And I want to be frank. In the current situation, when our proposals about equitable dialogue, about principled matters, had no response from the US and NATO, when the level of threat for our country is becoming greater and greater, Russia has every right to take countermeasures to enhance our own security. And that's how we plan to act. Right. That's uh, Vladimir Putin speaking through a translator, obviously. Uh, it's become a very serious situation uh, as uh, things stand. Uh, Mr. Putin expecting sanctions. Will there be sanctions? And what will that mean, uh, can you tell us, Karen? Yeah, I mean, this is an incredibly serious situation right now. And there are reports, of course, that Russian military forces are making their way <clears throat> to those separatist regions of Luhansk and Donetsk in eastern uh, Ukraine, which Putin is now recognizing as independent sovereign states. Um, I mean, it's it's happening extremely fast. All of the reaction coming from various places, you know, from Britain, uh, the um, Saeed, uh, Saeed Javid, the UK um, secretary, telling Sky News this morning that the Russian invasion has already begun. You had UK Defence Secretary Ben Wallace talking about it being incredibly serious. Um, you have um, sanctions now um, basically being signed off by, uh, by President Biden against certain areas and certain people in those parts of Ukraine. Um, but it's extremely serious. We're expecting that the EU will announce what sanctions limit us for the moment, it seems, um, that they will be announced this afternoon. Um, today in Brussels, EU ambassadors are going to meet to discuss uh, what sanctions, of course, the planning on the range of sanctions that could be and are threatened to be imposed will start to happen now. Um, it seems at the moment until, I suppose, people get a clearer sense of what is happening right now, whether Putin is just going to leave those troops in those separatist regions or whether he will try to move the troops into parts of that area that are still in Ukraine. I mean, they're part of a wider area um, called Donbass. So I think what we're going to see is announcements probably of a limited range of targeted sanctions right now. And then once things become clearer about the Russian intentions, we may begin to see 
all of this stuff ratchet up and mm. a wider range of sanctions being imposed. Yeah, and do sanctions work? Or do they ever work? Because it's always ordinary people who suffer as a result of sanctions uh, if uh, there's uh, lack of supply of medicines or foodstuffs. Uh, I don't think uh, that uh, the Russian elite would be too worried. Well, this is always the issue and it, of course, is a key question uh, Michael, to what extent do sanctions work? And as you say, they they can often impact on people on the ground in much more horrendous ways than they do the the powers that be. We're seeing this in Afghanistan, for example, at the moment. But I mean, these range of sanctions are supposed to be targeting Russia's elite, um, you know, threats that they won't be able to get their hands on their assets. There'll be freezing of assets they may have, for example, in the EU or in other countries that are going to impose the sanctions. They won't be able to get access to finance um, and then maybe potentially, and this is something of course that would affect many, many uh, people, uh, including those in the EU, whether there would be sanctions on imports of gas and Russian uh, uh, oil supplies, mm. um, which would of course have much wider implications as well. Yeah. But the alternative, of course, if you, if, you know, if sanctions, if you don't think they work, then what? You know, I mean, mm, yep. the idea that there would be um, forces from Western countries, for example, going in there would be horrific altogether well, if then there is a wider military engagement with Russian forces. Yeah, and people here won't be happy about uh, the cost of, of energy uh, if uh, it, it ratchets up that way. And it's uh, the extent to which it may ratchet up. Uh, will he be allowed uh, to launch a full-scale invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, if there's a war, who will the war be between? Uh, it won't be just between Russia and the Ukraine, will it? Well, you see, Ukraine isn't a member of the NATO alliance. This has been the big red line issue for Russia. It does not want Ukraine to be part of the NATO military alliance. If it was, the NATO really would be obliged to help it as a member of that alliance. And this is an extremely difficult situation and complex question right now Mm. is um, what happens if, I mean, there are all sorts of horrific kind of predictions out there that Russia is going to target Kiev, it's going to uh, topple the uh, president um, and, you know, it's going to move in much further into Ukraine. And you would have to ask, what are its intentions? If it's it's amassed something like 200,000 military forces along the borders of Ukraine, that kind of sounds hardly like just protecting these separatist regions. Mm. Um, And this is going to raise massive, massive questions about the European response and then a wider international response. I mean, we've seen in the past, for example, with the uh, collapse of the former Yugoslavia, and that created an awful lot of difficulties in terms of what should have been or what should be the European engagement in those kinds of wars. So this is going to be extremely difficult. And obviously, people are, are very fearful that Putin, and, and you heard mm. a bit of the rant of his on the televised address last night, it's quite quite mm. staggering, actually, some of the things he's coming out with. Yeah, he's a peacekeeper. But, <laughs> he's trying to prevent genocide from taking place. Well, this is it. I mean, yeah. his interpretation mm. of mm. history is, 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 is almost laughable, but it's incredibly serious at the same time, obviously. But I think this is going to really test the mettle of the EU and obviously wider uh, the, the West, the US, and beyond that in terms of How are they going to respond if Russia pushes the troops further in? And Russia will know, obviously, that um, they will be very reluctant to start engaging in a fully-fledged war with Russia. But then at the same time, 
if Putin does send the troops into uh, much more Ukraine sovereign territory, not just to stay within the the two uh, separatist rebel states, then it's going to be very, very difficult for the EU, for the West generally, to respond to this. And and we will, we only, I mean, we'll have to wait and see. I'm already, you know, there's one news report coming out after the next this morning. It's coming so rapidly now. Statements from like the ones I've quoted um, Boris Johnson is talking, you know, about unleashing um, a punishing barrage of sanctions. We're going to have those announcements from Brussels later on. Um, and, you know, there'll be further statements, obviously, from the US. And then it'll be very interesting to see what the likes of Turkey say and how they respond as well. So these are very, very testing times. And we're just coming out of the pandemic. And now look what's happening, you know, on on on, on Europe's doorstep. Absolutely. All right, uh, we leave it there for the moment, but many thanks as always for joining us uh, this morning. Karen Coleman, editor with Europarl Radio, which reports from the European Parliament uh, for Irish radio stations. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Olga Bacon joins us from Trim Garda Station for the report this week. And we're going to begin with an appeal for information following a serious traffic collision on the N1. Good morning, Michael. Yes, Garda Dundalk are appealing for witnesses to a road traffic collision which occurred on Saturday night, the 5th of February, at around 10.45pm at Junction 20 on the N1 southbound in Dramad. The vehicles involved were a silver BMW with a partial reg of WF14 and a white Ford Transit partial reg YH11. We're looking for any witnesses or drivers who may have dashed cam footage to contact Gardaí at Dundalk Garda Station on 42 Okay, we have a a number of burglaries uh, to report on uh, this week. Uh, The first of those in Oldcastle. Yes, um, Kelsgardy were responding to a report of a suspicious van in the area of Ballinmeal in Oldcastle on Thursday, the 17th of February, just after 4pm. While they were patrolling the area, they were flagged down and a report was made that a a burglary had occurred in a house in the Ballinmeal area. If you saw anything suspicious in the area or can help us in any way identify the suspects, you're asked to contact Gardaí at Kells Garda Station on zero, sorry, zero four six nine two eight zero eight two zero. Okay, and likewise, you'd hope people would contact you if they've information about another burglary that happened in Kilmainham Wood last week. Yes, again, Calsgardi are investigating this burglary and this happened between 9.30 and 10.30am on Tuesday the 15th of February at Cool in Kamenham Wood. The occupants returned home to find all rooms had been rummaged through and a number of items were stolen. Again, if you saw anything suspicious or you can help in any way to identify the suspects, you're asked to contact Gardaí at Calsgardi Station on 046 uh, Another burglary, this one in Banrath. Gardaí and Navin are investigating a burglary where the occupants disturbed two intruders in her home at around 9.30pm on Tuesday the 15th of February at Bellew in Balrath. Family came to her assistance and the intruders left the car, left the scene in a red car. Gardaí believed there was a third person driving this car. 
If you were in the area and notice anything suspicious, you're asked to contact Navangardi on 046-903-6100. Okay, uh, we're back to Ballineal, are we, or is that a repeat in my list? That's just that's a repeat in the list. Apologies, okay, Michael. Not at all. Okay, so we're going to Batterstown then, uh, where uh, there's a, another burglary that Gardaí are investigating. Yes, so the occupant was notified the house alarm was activated. When they returned home to the property, they discovered the house had been broken into and a number of rooms had been gone through. Gardaí at Ashburn are requesting that if you were in the area of Lismahan on the 21st of February and you noticed anything suspicious, would you let them know on 01 801060. All right. As I said at the outset, there's a number of burglaries uh, that you're reporting on uh, this week, unfortunately. Uh, the last report uh, of a burglary is from Lobenstown, and this just happened in uh, the last day or so. Yes, the Gardaí at Nobber and Navangard stations are investigating a burglary which occurred last night between 6pm and half past midnight. So this was at Sitting's Cross in Lobenstown. The occupant returned home to find the house was ransacked. Again, if you were in the area and noticed anything suspicious, you're asked to contact Navangardi on 046-903-6100. Okay, I think people listening to the radio might have some food for thought, uh, given the amount of burglaries uh, that you're reporting on this week. Uh, Perhaps uh, you'd give us some advice on home security. So we want people just to remember these um, points and tips. Secure all doors and windows. One in five burglaries gain access through an unsecured door or window. Light up your home. Use timer switches when you're out. Use your alarm and even when you're inside your home. Store keys safely and away from windows and letterboxes. Record details of valuables and don't keep large amounts of cash at home. If you're going on holidays, have a trusted person check your property. Arrange for deliveries to be delayed and considering having your post held until you get home using something like the MailMinder system at your local post office. And we ask you, call your local guard station if you see anything suspicious in the area. We prefer, prefer to prevent a crime happening where at all possible and we rely on you, the members of the public, to make us aware where and when we are needed. We know many of you do this already and we want to thank you for helping making our communities a safer place. Okay, lock up, light up and watch out for each other and we can all uh, benefit from that. Thank you indeed, Garda Olga Bacon of Trim Garda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Uh, thanks to Brian in Dundalk who was on to us uh, about lighting streetlights in public areas uh, and he said, is Loud County Council for real suggesting increasing the property tax to pay for additional lighting? Do they not realise how tough people are finding it to make ends meet? With the rise in the cost of living, ESB, fuel bills, everything has gone through the roof at this stage. And he says, we already pay property tax. Where is that money going? Public lighting is a basic service and you shouldn't have to beg for it. With the recent spate in attacks on women outdoors and indeed the elderly in their homes, it seems to me that we need to ensure that we have good public lighting. Well, thanks for sharing that thought with us, Brian, and indeed uh, for making contact with us uh, for that matter. Somebody else 
Bielsa in touch about public lighting. That's Grania who was on the phone. And Grania says public lighting is paramount nowadays because of safety concerns and particularly in the dark evenings. She says she lives near the Glen in Drogheda and uses the Glen regularly and would like to see better lighting there, for example. I'd be nervous walking along it with my husband once darkness falls in the evening because it is so dark. Thanks, Grania, for that. Somebody else texting us about this, saying, what about the developers paying for the lights? Their profits are astronomical. Uh, The business park on uh, the Arma Road built without lighting on the road itself. uh, and uh, there's a, a lot of problems like that. Uh, somebody else, uh, Tony in County Loud, uh, says if Louth County Council would make a better effort in collecting the outstanding money that is due to them in rent, uh, they'd have more money and it mightn't be so cash-strapped and also change the policy on paying top dollar for housing and outbuilding the for outbidding the first time buyers who can't compete uh, says uh, Tony somebody else says very one-sided to be talking about female violence men are also uh, victims of violence uh, perpetrated by women thank you to everybody who's been in touch God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.